Good afternoon. My name is Randy Engel. I'm the pastor of the North Hills Christian Reformed Church, a trustee of Calvin College, and an adjunct professor of theology at Oakland University and Detroit Ecumenical Theological Seminary. I would like to welcome you to the January series 2012 of Calvin College. Let us pray. Loving Father, we thank you for the world you've given us, a world filled with beauty and intrigue. And we thank you for placing in your world those who inspire us with their courage, for those who speak when something needs to be said, and for those who embody faith and conviction. We thank you today for your servant, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and we are grateful for our teacher, Eric Metaxas. Use this hour before us to instruct, to enrich our faith, and to deepen our understanding of your world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And now Galen Biker, president of Calvin College, will introduce our guest. Last year I had the privilege of introducing Eric Metaxas when he received the Canterbury Medal for Courage in Defense of Religious Liberty from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. And I said, this is somebody we need to have on the January series. Eric is a brilliant humorist who is also deadly serious about faith and religious values. He writes and speaks and produces with insight and grace for children and intellectuals, for social and political elites, and for the faithful in the pew or in front of the screen. His career is as decidedly eclectic as the talking vegetables in his videos, his biography of a 19th century social reformer, and a 20th century martyr. Now, Metaxas in Greek, according to one of our classics professors, means silk merchant. A silk merchant is an appropriate description of our honoree. He peddles words so smoothly through many genres and for many audiences. Now, at Yale, Eric made a literary splash as editor of the Yale Record, the nation's oldest college humor magazine. And then he made a literal splash following the 99th Yale-Harvard football game by successfully commanding the effort to throw Harvard's goalposts into the Charles River. <laughs> he was the class day speaker, co-writing and delivering the class history, a satirical address that is a Yale commencement tradition. And in the process, he upstaged the next speaker, Dick Cavett. His literary humor appeared in the Atlantic Monthly and later in the New York Times. Woody Allen called these pieces quite funny. Although you know, Woody Allen is the same guy who says that 80% of success is just showing up. <laughs> Eric's book and movie reviews, essays, and poetry have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Regeneration Quarterly, Christianity Today, National Review Online, BeliefNet, and First Things. He was the editorial director and head writer for Rabbit Ears Productions, writing over 20 children's videos and books narrated by great actors such as Robin Williams, Sir John Gilhood, Michael Keaton, and Gina Davis. His Rabbit Ears videos have won numerous Parents' Choice Awards and three Grammy nominations for Best Children's Recording. He then 
wrote and edited for Chuck Colson's Breakpoint, a nationally syndicated daily radio program with over 400 stations and an audience of 5 million. And he worked for VeggieTales. Eric's children's books for VeggieTales include the number one bestseller, God Made You Special, with over 600,000 copies in print. He is frequently featured on radio and TV as a commentator, and he's host of a series called Socrates in the City, Conversations on the Examined Life, a monthly event in New York City that has entertainment and thought-provoking discussions on God, life, and other topics, other small topics. That was uh, been a great uh, success. It's featured Dr. Francis Collins, Dr. John, or Sir John Polkinghorne, Baroness Carolyn Cox, Dana Gioria Osgenis, and Peter Kreeft. And I'm told that his book, Socrates in the City, was released just recently and has received great reviews. It'll be on sale with some of his other books in the West Lobby. Eric's acclaimed biography, Amazing Grace, William Wilberforce, and the Heroic Campaign to End Slavery, is the official companion book to the feature film, and it's been called a crackling bonfire of clarity and truth. His book, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About God But Were Afraid to Ask, came out in 2005. Tim Keller of New York City's Redeemer Presbyterian Church admitted that it was difficult not to gush. And the sequel, entitled Everything Else You Always Wanted to Know About God But Were Afraid to Ask, was published in 2007. Through his Socrates in the City series of lectures and discussions, Eric has related the faith, language of faith and the language of New York City for the benefit of America's cultural elites. He winsomely opens high society to the enduring religious values at the heart of Western culture. His best-selling biography, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy, is also having a significant positive impact on public discussions. Eric. Thanks for showing up. Please join me in welcoming Eric Metaxas to the podium. Wow. Oh, my Lord. Thank you. Wow, it is great to be in Fort Lauderdale. Thank you. I, did, I, did I get that wrong? I've been traveling a lot. Where am I? Um, Actually, I'm told that this is being broadcast right now in Fort Lauderdale. So if you're in Fort Lauderdale, shout loudly. We may be able to catch it. I, yeah, I heard something. Um, hard for me to believe that I'm here. I've not been to Calvin before. I praise God for this place. And it's, it's just a delight to be here. And it's uh, an additional delight to be in so many other places. I, I just find it hard to believe that it's, it's not good enough that you fill a room like this, but that you've got to make this available uh, beyond this uh, glorious room. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for the January series. And thank you uh, more generally uh, for doing what you do generally, which is uh, a lot. Uh, in a place like New York City where I live, uh, it's not like Grand Rapids. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah, for, for one thing, we have snow. Uh, and we, but honestly, uh, as I travel around the country and come to places like this, uh, it's a great encouragement 
to me. So know that you're an encouragement uh, to those uh, who don't live uh, and breathe and work in places like this. Um, I'm honored to be a part of the January series. There's so much uh, I want to say. Of course, the most important thing probably I should start with is Veggie Tales. And how sad that that is. But uh, I know, wherever, wherever I go, uh, anyone who introduces me, uh, no matter how the long the list is of, of things, the, the only thing that gets a rise, often almost literally out of the audience, is mention that I've worked for VeggieTales. And I don't know what that means, but I like it. Uh, uh, I did have the privilege for working for VeggieTales. I, I can't take t- too much credit. I was the uh, narrator... Uh, on the Esther video, if you've watched the Esther video and you were wondering, who's that narrator? Uh, I, I, I'm, I know you've wondered, now, well now you know. Uh, I, I'm the narrator on the Esther uh, video, and I'm a non-pictured uh, narrator, as most narrators are, but you know it's a vegetable universe, so that I was playing some kind of vegetable. We just will never know what kind of vegetable I was, but I think... I'm just guessing, I think I was a broccoli rob. You listen, you see what it sounds like. Uh, but I did that, and I had the joy of writing half of the Lila Kindly Viking video, the Hamlet Omelette parody. I can take credit for that. Uh, yes, I've written the only veggie Shakespeare parody uh, in existence that we know of. Um, how ridiculous. Uh, but that's true, and I wrote, yeah, I wrote uh, God Made You Special, and it had a subtitle, it was, God Made You Special Just Like Everybody Else, uh, but they took that out. So, um, yeah. Anyway, you've been a great audience, thank you, good night. Uh, I want to tell you uh, my story very briefly, and then uh, tell you Bonhoeffer's um, story a little bit. Okay, first of all, my story, um, my parents, let's start there, um, came to this country from uh, Greece uh, and Germany, respectively. My dad came from Greece, hence my surname Metaxas. My mom came from Germany, hence my deep love for Siegfried and Roy. Perhaps you know what I'm talking about. I think I will retire that joke. Thank you. Uh, But um, I grew up in the shadow of World War II. My parents lived through that period. Uh, We don't have time now, but... um, the stories my father have told, has told me over the years about what he went through in Greece during this terrible period and this Italian occupation and the German occupation, horror stories. My mother lived through uh, World War II in Germany. Uh, she was nine years old when her father was killed. Uh, my f- grandfather, for whom I'm named, Eric, uh, was, and to whom the book is dedicated, the Bonhoeffer book, my grandfather was a genuinely reluctant German soldier uh, who would listen to the BBC when he was home with his ear literally pressed against the radio speaker. Because if you were caught listening to the BBC in those days, you could be sent to a concentration camp. And so um, I've, I've heard uh, this, these stories over the years of this period in history, and it's always fascinated me and horrified me uh, and, and intrigued me. Um, I was raised in the Greek Orthodox Church, which I think is not Reformed, I'm not sure. Uh, thank you. I always love it when people laugh at reform jokes. I realize it's a pretty sophisticated audience. Uh, the, um, uh, mainly raised in what I would call cultural uh, Christianity. I mean, really the most important thing you could be uh, when, when I grew up was Greek. That's the best, highest good, uh, the telos. And, uh, of course, I was only half Greek, so it was always an issue. But I grew up in this wonderful community, but never really quite heard the gospel, the evangelion, the good news. Uh, it, was, it was not an evangelical uh, experience. And then, of course, I went to Yale University, which is 
slightly secular, just a little bit, just a little bit, just like 1% less than you guys. And uh, the fact is that, um, the fact of the matter is that uh, what modicum of faith I had uh, quickly evaporated, was challenged, and uh, uh, was weighed in the balance and found wanting. And I graduated entirely confused, quite sure that to believe that the Bible is the word of God, to believe that Jesus is the, the only way uh, to the Father, all of those things were hopelessly parochial and divisive, and that was great for people in flyover country, that's great for poor people, but we sophisticates, we cultural elites at places like Yale and Manhattan couldn't possibly believe that anymore because we all know that you know science has disproved the Bible in 1782, right? We all knew that. And so I moved on into this brave new world of not knowing uh, whether life has meaning, and being pretty sure that the meaning of life is that there is no meaning and that to ask that question is to face uh, an abyss of nihilism. So we don't ask that question. We get good jobs and try to forget about it for a few decades and then it's over. Um, but I had the misfortune, of course, of not getting a good job. I wanted to be a writer. Uh, he said bitterly. And, um, <laughs> and so, uh, so, yes, I graduated, uh, wanted to be a writer and was, was really wondering about the meaning of life. I, I did not have much to distract me, um, and I was thinking about this, and I was not happy with the idea that, that life has no meaning. It didn't make sense, really, to me, um, but I really felt that I had been uh, trained to think that uh, that was the case, and that some people faced it bravely and other people ignored it, but that was the reality. Um, uh, I, uh, in the course of, of this period of life, right after Yale, I ended up uh, moving back in with my parents, which I, I don't recommend. Uh, I, I specifically don't recommend moving back in with my parents because, uh, because I think I may have mentioned they're European immigrants and they don't have this sort of cavalier and generous American attitude that, oh, Eric's finding himself. This is all grist for the mill and he's going to be a writer. No, they thought maybe I should get a job. And... Um, so it was, it, was a, it was a harrowing experience, and, uh, and uh, it was, a, in, in all honesty, it was a very tough time uh, for me because I was quite lost, not just lost in terms of my career and how does one become a writer, um, but really lost uh, generally speaking, wondering what is the meaning of life and who am I and where am I going and does any of it matter? And if you face these questions, which unfortunately we should, um, it can be very frightening if you don't know the answer. And I, as I said earlier, didn't know the answer and was probably sure, reasonably sure, that there was not an answer, that the answer is that there is no answer, which is the bleakest answer of all. And so during this very difficult time living with my parents, I got a very awful menial job as a proofreader at Union Carbide in Danbury, Connecticut. Um, I think the, the Hebrew word would be Gehenna, I think. Uh, I, I don't know if that means anything to you, but uh, the, um, the misery of being in a fluorescent-lit uh, uh, um, cubicle a quarter mile from the nearest window in this horrible place, proofreading uh, volumes of number, uh, t- columns of numbers, it was, it was not a happy situation. And in this extraordinary misery... Um, I met a man who was a born-again believer, uh, and he begins sharing with me in my pain a little bit about the Bible and and God, and I was in enough pain to be slightly interested. Uh, So I encouraged him to tell me a little bit more, but don't get too close. I don't want to pray with you. I don't want to go to church with you, but tell me more. 
Tell me more. That's enough. Tell me more. Thank you. On and on it went, week after week, month after month. I'm asking these questions. I'm convinced that people who think the way he does are crazy, divisive, right-wing, Jesus-freak fanatics. And yet, I was strangely attracted uh, to this message of hope and joy and peace. And so this went on for some time, culminating around my 25th birthday. I had a dream. I won't tell that story now. Uh, It's an extraordinary story. Uh, It's on my website, which is just my name, ericmetaxas.com. Um, if you can spell it, if you can't spell it, actually, it's still ericmetaxas.com. But, um, uh, but it's uh, my conversion story, this dream where basically the nutshell version, Jesus reveals himself to me dramatically in such a way that I couldn't reason it away. Uh, I woke up the next morning knowing that Jesus is Lord, the Bible is true, uh, not really... Uh, taking a position just knowing uh, whether I liked it or didn't like it, I knew that this was true. But there was a joy and a peace uh, in it, I must say. And I remember asking my, telling my friend uh, who'd been sharing with me about this, this dream, he says, what do you think it means? I said, it means I've accepted Jesus. Now, I never would have said uh, anything like that up to that point. I would have been embarrassed and, and cringed at the very idea of it. But it was a simple fact. And so everything changed. I gave my career uh, to Jesus. I said, I've been screwing it up for a while. Why don't, why don't you take it? And, uh, and dramatically, um, the Lord, and, and the Lord, you know, miracles are definitely for today. Uh, I know that. And uh, it doesn't mean that um, we always uh, need to expect them. But generally, uh, if you're walking with God, you, you will, you'll see things uh, in various ways. God speaks to us in his way uh, to each of us. And I rather miraculously, or I should say genuinely miraculously, was given a job uh, writing uh, children's books. That's another story. But um, found my way eventually, uh, as uh, we've said earlier, working for VeggieTales, doing, doing a number of things. Worked for Chuck Colson. What a great joy to work for my hero, Chuck. And I think the real measure of a man is even after I've worked for him, he's still my hero. That's shocking because you know how it is when you get to know people. Uh, but I love him and, and honor, uh, respect him uh, and his work. Um, finally, I wrote this book, Everything You Always Want to Know About God But We're Afraid to Ask. And the point of my saying this is because I want to say how I came to write Bonhoeffer. I wrote Everything You Want to Know About God But We're Afraid to Ask because in the world in which I lived, People didn't know anything about God, and I kept thinking, what can I share with them? And we all know those wonderful books, right? We can give them, you know, Chesterton's Orthodoxy or C.S. Lewis or this or that or whatever. But you know what? Most people I knew won't read those books. They're not ready. Those books are too uh, theological, too this, too that. Um, After all, most of the people I know don't live in Grand Rapids. So (laughs) what can I give those people in New York and Connecticut? And so I thought, I'd like to write a book that sort of presents the basics of what we believe about the faith and the Bible, but in a fun kind of Q&A format that they might actually read, kind of like something non-threatening, like if I gave you a book on UFOs or Bigfoot, you say, well, this is kind of weird, let me check it out, and you check it out. I said, I want to write something like that. So I wrote everything I always wanted to know about God, but we're afraid to ask you, some humor. And I found myself, lo and behold, on CNN talking about the things of God. Now, if you watch CNN, you'll notice that that does not happen every afternoon. Uh, If you don't believe me, tune in and you'll see. Uh, But I I found myself on national TV talking about my book, Everything About God, and I expected the hardball questions, right? I expected, how can a good God, your God, allow suffering and evil and death, and what do you say about that? And I was expecting those kinds of questions. Instead, I got a softball for which I was not prepared. What was the softball? Well, the anchor said, well, you know, there's some historical stuff in your book. There's this paragraph here about Wilberforce. Can you talk about Wilberforce? 
I thought, what? <laughs> I hardly remembered that. I had a paragraph in the Everything About God book just mentioning William Wilberforce as a man who took the Bible seriously and consequently changed the world, led the battle for the abolition of the slave trade because he believed the Bible was true. He believed in the God of the Bible and changed the world. So suddenly I find myself on national TV talking about Wilberforce, which leads to a publisher asking me, would you like to write a biography of William Wilberforce? And I prayed about it, and uh, the Lord spoke, and I wrote a biography of William Wilberforce, never having had an ambition to write a biography because I'm slightly too self-centered to want to spend that much time thinking about somebody else. (laughs) It's true. And... um, but as I wrote that book and the movie came out, some of you saw the movie, uh, people kept asking, well, who are you going to write about next? Who are you going to write about next? Some people said, about whom will you next write? <laughs> I'm an evangelist for the word whom. I think that uh, in many cases it's the right word. Uh, in the objective case, it is the right word. And uh, if English is your language, you might consider using the word whom now and again. <laughs> if it's English is your first language, let me recommend that to you. So if you hear a question often enough, who, whom, uh, you, you suddenly, or I mean, you eventually think, maybe I'm supposed to write another biography. And I remembered in the summer of 88, when I came to faith, the man who led me to faith had shared with me a book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. had given me cost of discipleship and said, have you heard of Bonhoeffer? And I remember uh, 23, four years ago saying, no, I've never heard of Bonhoeffer. Who's Bonhoeffer? And I remember this a friend saying, oh, he's a pastor who got involved in the plot to kill Hitler who, because of his faith in Jesus, stood up for the Jews, uh, was killed in a concentration camp. Have you not heard of him? No. And then I reminded him that I'd gone to Yale University where they don't teach you <clears throat> about the heroes of the faith, at least not during the semesters that I was uh, attending. And um, I was amazed by this story because, as I've said, my mother grew up during this period. My grandfather was killed in the war. I was haunted. I said, what an amazing story. And then I was annoyed that I'd never heard this story, and I was annoyed that that story and other stories of heroes of faith, like the story of Wilberforce, are not known and not told. And there is a secular fundamentalism uh, that is, some, for some reason, for various reasons, to be honest, um, not comfortable with those stories, or they just ignore them. And we live in a culture where it's hard to hear these stories. You're not going to turn on TV and hear much about this. And I remember hearing this story of Bonhoeffer all these years ago, thinking everyone needs to know this story. This is inspiring. This is amazing. Little did I dream I'd ever write a book about it. But of course, when people kept asking me, what's your next biography going to be? Finally, I found my way uh, to accepting the idea that perhaps I could write one more biography uh, and perhaps about Bonhoeffer. So of course I did. The reception the book has uh, gotten has stunned no one uh, more than it has stunned Eric Metaxas. I am not used to Uh, success. That's not a joke. That's true. Maybe it is a joke, but it's also true. I'm not used to success. Um, You know, how many people do we know who work very, very, very hard? And you don't don't get rewards necessarily for working hard. Uh, In this case, by God's grace, uh, the book uh, succeeded. And I have been just, as I said, stunned at the reception that it struck a, a chord, in some cases a nerve. And it gives me joy to see how God has blessed this book because the book is not about me. Uh, it's about a man of God. Um, so I want to tell you his, uh, his story very briefly. But, but the path that, that God has led me on as a result of telling the story of Bonhoeffer is utterly uh, 
um, unexpected. For me, it's been utterly unexpected. I, I, got to, uh, I got a handwritten letter from George W. Bush, who you may remember was a president of the United States not so long ago. Uh, and by the way, uh, as the news media will tell you, he's intellectually incurious. So the very idea that he read a 600-page biography about a German theologian and then wrote me a handwritten note is itself rather extraordinary and notable. Um, and I had the privilege of spending an hour with him discussing this book. These are things that the son of European immigrants does not take for granted. These are great honors and blessings. And, um, and I know it's for God's purposes, as I say, and not for mine. So let me tell you briefly the story of, of Bonhoeffer. And uh, I'll begin uh, in 1906. He was born uh, in 1906 into what can only reasonably be described as an outstanding, extraordinary family. In fact, I was myself stunned to discover what his family was like. I thought he sort of arose out of a vacuum, as geniuses sometimes do. He did not. His family were all geniuses. His father was uh, the most famous psychiatrist in Germany for the first half of the 20th century, which I believe is 50 years. You could check the math on that. And I was an English major, so uh, I, I throw that up. Um, and uh, his, uh, his they were all geniuses. His brother uh, decided to go into physics. Well, in the Bonhoeffer family, deciding to go into physics means you're going to split the atom with Max Planck and Albert Einstein, which he did. I've actually uh, seen the atom in a museum in Dresden. It's about the size of a softball. Did you know the atoms were a lot bigger in those days? Yes. I'm just checking to see if you're listening, and I think many of you are. So... Um, but this is true. His brother was such a genius that he split the atom with, with, uh, with Einstein. And uh, his other brothers were geniuses, and his sisters were geniuses, and they married geniuses. And it was an extraordinary family, extraordinary family. Um, his father, being this great, famous scientist, taught the kids to think clearly, logically, rigorously, not to think with your emotions, not to express yourself in cliches and slogans but to think clearly like a scientist. And Bonhoeffer took this idea and imported it into the world of theology. That's an important part of who he is and why he did what he did. Um, the parents not only taught the children to think clearly and rigorously, but taught them to express themselves clearly, to have something to say or perhaps to shut up, which I think is, a, is an important thing in our day of uh, infinite information. Do you have something to say? Uh, can you express it clearly or are you just confusing people? The Bonhoeffer family was very rigorous about this, almost to the point of, of uh, giving the impression that it would be intimidating uh, to be at their dinner table, at the, in the dining room table. But I think that there was, there was a lightness and a joy there. In fact, the evidence that I have, and most of this is in the book, is that this was not just an impressive family uh, in that sense, impressive on a piece of paper, but, but impressive as human beings, that these people actually believed that one had to uh, act on what one claimed to believe, and that if you claimed to believe something but it wasn't evidence in your life, then you were a hypocrite, and you shouldn't say that you believe something if you don't believe it. We all know about grace. We're not talking about living perfect lives, but the idea that one ought to take what one claims to believe seriously, and one ought to live it in such a way that everyone sees, yes, he really does believe that. That's part of the Bonhoeffer family culture. So Bonhoeffer grows up in this extraordinary family at age 14. He announces bravely that he wants to be a theologian, uh, not expected by everyone in the family. Again, the father being a scientist kind of probably wrinkled his nose at that more than once, but they were respectful of each other, and Bonhoeffer, being the genius that he was, really did know that this is what he wanted 
to do, to leap into the world of theology. And when he said theology, he didn't mean he wanted to be a a parish priest. He wanted to be an academic superstar, to distinguish himself as his brother had in the world of physics and his other brother in the world of jurisprudence. He wanted to distinguish himself in the field of theology, academic theology at Berlin University, which at the time was the place on planet Earth to study theology. So he had real um, high uh, expectations of himself in the academic world and there's no question that he met them. Uh, he ends up impressing everyone uh, and getting his doctorate at age 21. Any, anybody here get their doctorate at age 21? Other than, no? Yeah, me, me either. Although I can say this publicly, I have just uh, a week ago begun work on my honorary doctorate. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. So... Uh, So Bonhoeffer uh, is asking on this very high theological level, this academic level, the question, what is the church? That's the question he is asking on this high theological level and succeeding brilliantly and and winning accolades and respect everywhere uh, from the living legends in the world of theology at that time. But Bonhoeffer, in asking the question, what is the church, discovers that he also has a love for the church itself. And he decides that he wants to be ordained as a Lutheran pastor, uh, and so in typical Bonhoeffer fashion, it's not enough just to be an academic uh, genius and superstar, but he also wants to be a Lutheran pastor. And so he can't get ordained till age 25, and so in the meantime, he continues to do uh, some teaching. Uh, he spends a year as an assistant vicar in Barcelona, Spain. I think he picked up the Spanish language in a weekend, and I don't know about you, but I hate people like that. And, uh, and then at age 24, he decides to go to New York for... Uh, his final year before he gets ordained, decides to, you know, kill some time and study theology at Union Theological uh, Seminary. Bonhoeffer did not expect to find much by way of theology at Union, and I can say he was not disappointed. Uh, It's actually hilarious when you read, uh, I quote his letters and his journals, he was very uh, gracious about it, but it's clear that he looked down his German theological nose at what, in his phrase, passed for theology at Union. He found it to be very... um, a very simplistic kind of knee-jerk anti-fundamentalism. You've never seen any of that, have you? Uh, Just sneering at the fundamentalists and yet not beginning to be uh, up to their level in terms of biblical knowledge and and so on and so forth. And Bonhoeffer was was a little bit depressed by it because he expected more, uh, a little more at least. Uh, He found, you know, sort of warmed over social gospel, you know, feeding the poor, all that good stuff. But Bonhoeffer says, that's great, but how is it Christianity? Where's the theology? He was not finding much there. Uh, And I think the reason he ends up going to New York has much less to do with studying at Union, which after all, let's face it, he got his doctorate from Berlin University at age 21, now he's 24 at Union. It wasn't about the academics. It was really about the experience of being in New York. And the most important part of that was that a fellow student at Union, an African-American student from Alabama named Frank Fisher, invites Bonhoeffer one Sunday morning to visit with him uh, Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And Bonhoeffer goes with Frank Fisher. The Bonhoeffers were all culturally curious and just wanted to experience everything, and that was part of going to New York, to America. And so he goes up to Harlem, and he goes to Abyssinian Baptist Church, and what he sees there, to cut to the chase, totally changes his life forever. He experiences a kind of worship uh, that is not mere religion. It's not sort of fussy, ecclesiastical Lutheranism. He sees a full-throated, passionate worship 
of the living Lord Jesus Christ. The music transported him. The sermon was fiery gospel preaching uh, from uh, the legendary uh, preacher. It, it just goes on and on. Bonhoeffer's descriptions of this, uh, it was, it was uh, Adam Clayton Powell Sr. Uh, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and the theology and the evangelism with the works, right? Both together. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both together. And Bonhoeffer is, is moved by this, and he's moved by a suffering congregation, a group of people who clearly know suffering. These are African Americans in 1930. Uh, this is not mere religion. This is not, they're not going through the motions. They believe in this God. They're worshiping, uh, and they love him. This is evident to Bonhoeffer, and it simply changes his life. He vows to go back to Abyssinian Baptist Church every Sunday uh, that he's in New York City. And just imagine that he did this, uh, this toe-headed, bespectacled Berlin academic going up to Harlem to worship among the African Americans every Sunday. He taught Sunday school up there. It changes him. There's no question that it changes him. Bonhoeffer returns to Germany uh, in the summer of 1931, and his friends notice that he's different somehow. Uh, they, now, he was theologically orthodox before that. Let, let's not pretend. You can read what he wrote before that. You can quibble with some little things, but basically, it's really clear that he gets it. He gets the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he comes back, and his friends notice something has nonetheless changed. Uh, he seems to know that it's not about him. It's not about impressing people with his brilliant um, theology. Uh, it's about Jesus. It's about being a submitted, obedient servant of Christ, a disciple. That's rather different. People begin to see this in Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer um, begins expressing himself differently. Now, the Nazis, by the way, have begun to rise dramatically. When Bonhoeffer left for New York, the Nazis were the ninth largest political party in the Reichstag. When he comes back to the second largest political party, things have changed. Bonhoeffer can sense it. He begins to say things from the lectern, when he's teaching and from the pulpit, when he's preaching, um, along the lines of, in Germany, we can only have one savior. Christians in Germany can only have one savior, and that is Jesus Christ. Rather a pointed thing to say when you have a theologically confused uh, and ignorant populace who is looking to Adolf Hitler uh, to be a messianic figure to pull them out of the shame and misery of uh, the Weimar Republic and the Versailles Treaty, Bonhoeffer begins seeing what's happening. He begins speaking out against it, not in an incendiary way, uh, but speaking out against it nonetheless. He begins saying things to his students that one wouldn't hear in the theologically liberal world of Berlin uh, University at the time. He asks his students, do you love Jesus? That's not the sort of thing one would have heard uh, in those precincts. Uh, he talks about the Bible as the word of God. He begins taking students on retreats uh, and asking them to meditate on a uh, verse of scripture and ask the Lord who is alive and who wrote these scriptures uh, who, to speak to you through the scripture. This very idea, Bonhoeffer didn't just believe it, but he acted on it and he was training uh, these young men and women to hear from God, to read the scripture as though it is God's love letter to you personally, as though the Lord has something to say to you personally. This is a dramatic thing. In 19... 19- 33, we know uh, Hitler becomes chancellor January 31st, and two days later, Bonhoeffer goes on the radio and gives a speech in which he talks about the fallacy of the so-called Fuhrer principle. There's a whole chapter in my book about this Fuhrer principle. It was a very popular idea in Germany uh, in the first decades of the 20th 
century about leadership because there was this rudderless situation. The Weimar Republic was this democratic uh, hash forced upon them. They weren't used to democracy. They had had a wonderful leader in the Kaiser and the church and state were united and Germany was strong and now they had this confused situation and so there was all this talk of a Fuhrer, a leader. We need a strong leader. And Bonhoeffer goes on the radio two days after Hitler has become the Fuhrer, the Chancellor, and Bonhoeffer dissects this idea with typical philosophical precision and he makes it very clear that the only true leader The only real Fuhrer is a leader who is submitted to a higher authority. If you are not submitted to a higher authority, namely God, then from where does your leadership come? What right do you have to lead if you are not in turn submitted to a higher authority? True leadership also must be servant leadership. Uh, Bonhoeffer uh, exposes this, again, not in an incendiary way, typical Bonhoeffer fashion. It's very measured, um, nonetheless devastating. And so from here on in, from the beginning, Bonhoeffer is on the record as speaking out against what is happening in Germany, but he doesn't do it as a hothead. Uh, It's important to understand that it's in a measured way because he actually cares not just about scoring rhetorical points, but about changing the situation. Um, So Bonhoeffer is one of the leaders uh, in the battle, the Kirchenkampf, the, the, the church battle, because he saw very quickly that the Nazis were attempting not just to take over uh, most of society, but to take over all of society, which in Germany included the church. Uh, the Nazis were creating a Nazified state church, and Bonhoeffer saw that their theology was, was clearly uh, against the gospel of Jesus Christ, most specifically on the racial issue, that they were trying to exclude people who were ethnically Jewish from being a part of the church. And there were many Jews in Germany uh, who, who had been attending church for, for generations, and suddenly the Nazis define everything racially and say no. The German church must be racially pure, no Jews allowed. And Bonhoeffer uh, did the hard work, and it doesn't seem hard to us now because we we understand some things, but in in, in those days in America and in other parts of the world like Germany, thinking along racial lines was was not known to be necessarily so terrible, and so many people were thought, well, I guess I can live with that. that. That makes some sense to me. Uh, Well, Bonhoeffer understood that, yeah, it might make some sense to you, but if you examine it, Next to the scriptures, it will not make sense to you. It is uh, utterly antithetical to God's view of who we are. God looks on the heart. Uh, He does not look on your your racial uh, makeup. And so Bonhoeffer is one of the leading voices trying to call the people of God, the German church, away from the Nazified Reich church um, with some success. Uh, in 1934, uh, a member, a, a number of these um, uh, people, uh, along with Bonhoeffer, uh, write something called the Barman Declaration. Actually, Karl Barth writes most of it. And uh, the Barman Declaration is a high watermark because you have about 6,000 pastors signing this declaration. I quote most of it in my book because it's such an important document. And they separate from the German state church. Extremely dramatic. All those of you who are aware of church politics know that it takes a long time for somebody to have the guts uh, and uh, whatever it takes to pull away from a denomination and to say we're separating. Well, they did it uh, in a matter of months. And in 1934, the Barman Declaration uh, is published and Bonhoeffer and a number of other pastors become what's known as the Confessing Church. Many of you know that story. They're basically the good guys in this story. They want to have the real German evangelical Lutheran church but Bonhoeffer very quickly realizes that this, this political church battle uh, is not the real 
battle, that there's a larger battle, that somehow the Nazis are too canny, too politically uh, smart uh, to be outfoxed uh, in this way, and that uh, it's going to be more difficult than some of them think. Bonhoeffer in 1935 is deputized by the leaders of the Confessing Church to start an illegal seminary or to run an illegal seminary to train up real men of God uh, who are going to be obedient disciples of Jesus Christ and not just uh, figureheads in the German state church. So Bonhoeffer does that first at Zingst and then at Finkenwalde, and I always think of this as the golden era of Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer is training these young men on the Baltic coast to know what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to read the scripture, to teach the scripture, uh, to love your enemies, to forgive, to do all the things that God requires of us as Christians, not just to exegete scripture, but to believe it, to live it, to walk it, to talk it. This is something that was not happening uh, in the German state church. I think we know that, and it's not happening in many seminaries today. This is a rare thing when you have a seminary really training people to be obedient, sold-out disciples of Jesus Christ. So Bonhoeffer is doing that for a number of years. Uh, Of course, the Gestapo uh, shuts it down eventually. Uh, But Bonhoeffer then takes the whole thing underground. I always think of it as kind of a floating craps game. The, The Nazis don't know where this is happening. It's happening in a vicarage here, in a farmhouse there. The teaching continues. Bonhoeffer was very wise that way, uh, very um, willing to deceive uh, the Gestapo. Um, In about 1938, however, that too was shut down, and then Bonhoeffer was prohibited from uh, teaching and speaking publicly, and then forbidden from publishing. He was forbidden from publishing uh, mostly because he had the temerity to write a book on the Psalms, which some of you may know are in the Old Testament. Did you know that? I believe they're still there. Uh, The Nazified state church actually, and this is hilarious and deeply tragic, but they actually thought that the New Testament was too Jewish, so we're going to eliminate that. We're going to create some kind of ersatz uh, pseudo-Christianity and call it German Christianity, and it will be utterly devoid of all Jewish influence. Good luck with that project. I'll see you on Monday. Uh, Absurd and yet true. And so Bonhoeffer writes a book on the Psalms, so... Uh, He's forbidden from publishing. So he begins to wonder now, what is it that he's going to do? He can no longer lead this illegal seminary. He can no longer speak uh, publicly. He can no longer publish. The war is coming, of course. Now Bonhoeffer has to ask the question, what will he do when the war comes? You could not be a conscientious objector in those days. What was he going to do? Uh, Ultimately, Bonhoeffer decides he's going to go back to America. A number of people, uh, most notably um, Reinhard Niebuhr, pull strings to get this brilliant pastor and theologian out of Germany uh, and to America. Bonhoeffer uh, takes a ship to America, and no sooner is he on the ship than he realizes something's wrong. He does not have the peace of God. Uh, And so he's praying furiously and and scouring the scriptures. In fact, there's a a longish chapter in the book where I uh, show uh, his journals and his letters, he is wrestling with God and asking God, who is alive and who wishes to speak to us, Lord, what do you say that I should do now? What is the answer? I don't know. And he was wrestling and wrestling and wrestling. Uh, He lands, uh, the ship uh, uh, comes to New York, Bonhoeffer gets out, and day after day, uh, he's wrestling and wrestling, and he is Uh, hopelessly uh, divided from himself. It's as if he's a ghost wandering around the streets of New York in the hot summer of 1939. Uh, I'm just fascinated to read his his journal entries, and most of that is is in the book. Um, He ultimately decides that 
he's made a mistake. Uh, how embarrassing, because people have really pulled strings for him to be able to get there. But he decides that God is leading him to go back to stand with his people in Germany. And 26 days after he has arrived in New York, he gets on a ship and heads back to Germany. Now, he knew that he was going back into danger, but I think it's important for us to pause and to note that this was a man uh, who really believed um, in the God of Scripture, who believed that the Scripture was the Word of God, and if the Lord calls you to do something, you are a fool not to do it, even if it's difficult. Bonhoeffer felt God calling him to do this, and so he had the courage that comes from real faith, uh, and he went back into an uncertain future. Now, the question, of course, is what exactly was he going to do when he got back? Well, what he does um, has to do with his brother-in-law, mainly. His brother-in-law, Denanyi, was um, a leading figure in the Abwehr. The Abwehr was German military intelligence. Uh, Bonhoeffer's brother-in-law was one of the leading figures in the conspiracy against Hitler, which had been bubbling along for a number of years already. Uh, there were many leading figures uh, in the Abwehr, uh, most notably, uh, in this case, uh, Bonhoeffer's brother-in-law, who were working uh, against the Nazis while pretending to work for the Third Reich. Okay, this is German military intelligence after all. Bonhoeffer's brother-in-law hires Bonhoeffer because the war has come. Bonhoeffer has to do something. He knows he's not going to pick up a gun to fight in Hitler's war. He was not a pacifist as he has uh, often been portrayed. If you, you read the book, I think it becomes very clear that he was simply against uh, you know, the wrong kind of use of force, but he was not against war in general if it was a just war. But in this case, very clearly, it was an unjust war. There was no way he was going to go to fight in Hitler's war. And so he joins officially German military intelligence, which is to say he becomes a spy, a double agent. Uh, he now becomes part of this conspiracy, officially, against Adolf Hitler. And so his real job is to travel around Europe. You know, he's got all these ecumenical contacts, and so he's going to pretend to be furthering the aims of the Third Reich during this time of war. We've all got to band together for the fatherland, obviously. But what he's really going to be doing is he's going to be using his access as a member of German military intelligence to travel to neutral countries to make contact with members of the Allied government. And most notably in Norway, he contacts his old friend, uh, Bishop George Bell, the Bishop of Chichester, who has uh, connections in the Churchill government, to let the Churchill government, imagine, to let the enemy now, England, know that there are Germans inside Germany working against Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. Incredibly dangerous. This is what Bonhoeffer was doing. He also continued uh, to write, uh, not to publish, but to write, worked on his ethics, and of course, to, to do the work of a pastor always, writing letters uh, to the seminarians that he had taught at Zingsten Finkenwalde, really just functioning as, as a pastor constantly. So he continues to do these things. In 1942, he falls in love. That story has really never been told before. I am shocked to say that that uh, and a number of other things in my book are, are rather original, or I should say they've not been, the stories have not been told before. I didn't write the book to say anything original, to be perfectly honest, but I found that in the course of telling the story, there were a number of things uh, that hadn't really been told. The story of this really beautiful love affair uh, and subsequent engagement is uh, chief among them. So Bonhoeffer uh, falls in love with Maria von Wedemeyer, uh, gets engaged, and no sooner is he engaged than he's arrested. Why is he arrested? Not for his involvement in the plot to kill Hitler, 
but rather for his involvement in something called Unternehmen Sieben, Operation Seven, so-called, because it was a plot to get seven German Jews out of Germany and into neutral Switzerland, which is to say to save their lives. Uh, it ends up being more than seven. But Operation Seven was the reason Bonhoeffer was arrested. The Gestapo noticed some financial shenanigans. The uh, wonderfully neutral Swiss required cash on the barrel head for every Jew. Isn't it wonderful, these neutral countries? I just love it that they don't take any positions. But they will take money for every Jew. Uh, it's really depressing, actually, and let you be forewarned against thinking that you can ever be neutral uh, in some issues. But in this case, the Swiss demanded money there were some financial shenanigans, and in his attempt to help uh, these Jews, Bonhoeffer got entangled and eventually caught and arrested. So he's just, in, he's just engaged. Now he's arrested, taken to Tegel Military Prison. Tegel Military Prison was not so terrible. It was a military prison. Bonhoeffer's uh, uncle was the uh, military commandant over all of Berlin, so he was treated with kid gloves, treated reasonably well, uh, he hoped to get out. He hoped that his uh, case would come to trial. There was a, a modicum of uh, legality still alive in Germany. And uh, he hoped to get out. He hoped uh, to get married. It's very clear. I, I quote many of these letters in the book that they're planning this marriage. Um, but, of course, it drags on and on, and he doesn't get out. And then finally, in 1944, the Valkyrie plot goes awry. Now, I, I should say, I didn't say, while Bonhoeffer's in prison, uh, he hopes to get out because he thinks his case can come to trial and he can, you know, fool the prosecutors, uh, or Hitler will be killed because the, the conspiracy has not been uncovered. So hopefully the people who are still out there working to kill Hitler and to overthrow the Nazis will succeed, and Bonhoeffer has hoped that that will happen, or the Allies will succeed. Uh, something will happen. But as we know, in July of 44, the Valkyrie plot goes awry, the bomb explodes, Hitler is not killed, and the conspiracy is for the first time uncovered. So thousands are arrested, tortured, names come up, Bonhoeffer's name is among them. And so Bonhoeffer, uh, it's safe to say his days are from this point on numbered. Uh, he's transferred to the dreaded Gestapo prison on Prince Albrechtstrasse in uh, Berlin, uh, much less um, uh, hospitable situation than Tegel military prison. Um, then he's transferred to Buchenwald concentration camp. Uh, the last part of the book, the last week of his life, before he's transferred to Flossenburg concentration camp, where he's uh, murdered by the Nazis on April 9th, is, is almost a dream. And it, in some ways, it was my favorite part of, of the book, and still is. It's a, it's a, a it's a true story, but it's, it's, it's a dreamy thing that he's in this van going through Germany. Germany has become a sliver in the middle of Europe because the, the, the Western forces of the Allies on the um, eastern side, uh, on the western side, and, and, and then the Soviets on the other side have, have narrowed Germany down to nothing, and the, the Nazis don't know what to do with these elite prisoners, and so they're transferring them around. In any case, Bonhoeffer ends up, as we know, at Flossenburg concentration camp. People often talk about Flossenburg like Bonhoeffer was there for a long time. He was there for maybe, I don't know, 12 or 18 hours total. Uh, he was hanged at dawn uh, on April 9th. My book came out uh, on the 65th anniversary 
of that, and I gave a, a speech, really this speech, at Socrates in the city, uh, in New York City, uh, on that date. And, um, and I close this talk, and I, and I close my book, really, with something that Bonhoeffer said in 1933. In 1933, Bonhoeffer gave a sermon to a Lutheran congregation where he talks about death, where he talks about death as the most terrible thing imaginable unless you believe in the God of the Scripture. Because if you haven't heard it before, to believe in the God of Scripture is to believe in a God who has, in fact, conquered death and who invites us into his life such that we must never, ever die. This is an extraordinary thing. And Bonhoeffer is preaching to this congregation and letting them know that, you know, if you think of yourself as a Christian, you need to know this is true. This is not a nice thing we tell ourselves so that our lives will be a little bit better. This is literally true. Jesus Christ has conquered death and he invites us into that. Bonhoeffer says anyone who has ever glimpsed the kingdom of God, anyone who has ever uh, come to know the God of the scripture, is, is from that moment homesick to be with him. And so Bonhoeffer asks, and I ask, and we ask, are you homesick? Are you homesick? Have you ever glimpsed the Lord? Or have you, in fact, never really glimpsed him? Do you still fear death? Because uh, it's not the Lord's will that you fear death. It's his will that you be free of all anxiety, be anxious for nothing, but trust the Lord utterly in such a way that you are completely free of fear because that's the Lord's will for you. And you will be courageous as Bonhoeffer was courageous. You cannot help but be courageous if you really know the Lord. Bonhoeffer preaches this and he goes to the gallows, I'm I'm sure, 12 years later, that much more convinced of this. I I don't get the idea uh, that he was wringing his hands, that he knew that his job, and we ought to know that our jobs, is simply to know the Lord and to obey him with joy. We know that it's not works. We know that there's joy. If, if you don't experience joy in obeying the Lord, then it is works righteousness. Uh, if you know who he is and what he has done, it changes the equation utterly. Bonhoeffer got that. He preached that in 1933. Uh, he lived it. It's very clear that his life was his theology, uh, that he was not impressed by theology, uh, that if you say, I believe this, if you get a statement of faith at your church and you think that it justifies you, that's a fig leaf and it's an offense against God. God is not about theology. Uh, he's about looking at your heart. And he can see what your theology is. He can see. And we ought not to think we can ever fool him. We cannot fool him with a statement of faith. We cannot fool him with our actions. We can do good. We can do, we, we've all read the scripture. We can't fool God. You can't fool God by uh, working on behalf of the poor. You can't fool God by being uh, theologically buttoned up. The Lord knows all, and he looks on the heart. And Bonhoeffer, in his whole life, not just in his theology, but his life, which was his theology, he's exhorting the church of Jesus Christ to know the Lord personally and to be freed to be utterly freed from dead religion, which I think we must say is of the devil. It's the worst counterfeit in the history of the universe. Uh, It's of the devil. Bonhoeffer was trying to get the German church to see the Lord himself and not to be fooled whether on this side or on this side, but to actually see God, to know God, 
and then to rejoice in the freedom of his grace and what he has done for us. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's very clear that Bonhoeffer got that and that he was calling out prophetically to the church to see that. We can conclude that in that day he failed. As many prophets, most prophets I think do in their days, they fail. Uh, And then years later we say, hey, wasn't Isaiah great? What a great guy. Well, that's the way it is. We're broken, we're sinful, but I think somehow uh, in allowing me to tell this story for our generation, the Lord wants us to look again at Bonhoeffer's life uh, for the Lord's purposes, not to glorify Bonhoeffer, uh, but, but to hear what his prophetic voice was saying about us, to us, such that we would get a second chance, such that we could this time heed the prophetic voice of God through Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, and never come close to making the same mistakes that the German church, God help them, uh, did uh, during that era. God bless you. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much, Eric. Um, I didn't see anybody losing uh, their attention span looking at the clock to see if there were going to be questions. I think we've run out of time. You're welcome to uh, greet Eric in the West Lobby. There's books are for sale there, and uh, he might be willing to sign one or two as well. So thanks again for coming, and we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>